thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things, and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Good morning. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here and and, uh, happy Father's Day to you. Uh, Fathers change lives. We believe that, that God has given fathers the, the ability to change lives. And our lives are all changed by our fathers. Ultimately, of course, by our by our heavenly father. You love when John writes, see what love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And then he adds, and so we are children of God. Why? Because our heavenly father has done everything that was needed to save us and to bless us in this life and the next. And this great heavenly father has of course given us earthly fathers who also change change our lives. Hopefully for good, many of us have had earthly fathers who have shaped us and formed us and led us into being the men and women that the Lord has has designed for us to be. Of course, we recognize that the life change brought by our earthly fathers hasn't always been so good. Many of us think of our earthly fathers and, and there's, a, there's a sorrow, there's, there's a sadness, there's a lament because they weren't the men that God called them to be for, for you. And if that's your experience, we, we, we weep with you. And that perhaps makes us all the more grateful for a, a third type of father. The heavenly father who gives us earthly fathers also gives us spiritual dads. Spiritual fathers who change our lives, men who have led us and loved us, men who have made our lives immeasurably better than they would have been without them. Who comes to your heart, to your mind, when you think of your own spiritual fathers? Well, today, we as a a church, we as a a congregation have the great joy of of installing one of our spiritual fathers as Pastor Emeritus here at this church. John Wood came with Marianne and their three children, Rachel, David, and Sarah, to begin work at Cedar Springs in 1990. And God changed so many lives through their ministry. God did amazing things through their, through their ministry. John's faithful preaching, his resolute leadership, his pastor's heart led to people coming to Christ, led to disciples being made, led to the nations being reached. God did an amazing work of life change uh, through John and his family here in, in this congregation. And so on this Father's Day, when we honor our, our fathers, uh, we, we honor John as, as Pastor Emeritus. Now, as Pastor Emeritus, uh, John has no seat on the board. He has no responsibilities. He has no office. He has no parking space. He has to attend no meetings. 
why would we do that to him? Like we're trying to, he's, he's done his time. We're trying to honor him, not discourage him. <laughs> Instead, uh, Pastor Emeritus is a, an honorary title bestowed on one for their faithful years of service. And John, it is the heart of this congregation for you to, to receive this title as, as a, a token of our love for you, as an expression of our gratitude for you, and as a, a sincere welcome home to life in this church family. So friends, let's give glory to God and honor one of our spiritual fathers. Thanks, brother. Thank you. When James first told me that you all had elected me as Pastor Emeritus, I said, I've always been grateful that this congregation is very forgiving and has a very short memory. <laughs> so I, I thank God for you. Next, honestly, next to the gift of my family, the greatest gift that God has given me in my life was being able to serve here for so long with you. I don't know how you put up with me so long. There were occasional times when I couldn't understand how I put up with you so long, but <laughs> it was all for our sanctification. Um, and, and I do want to thank you and tell you how good it is to be here. I've just loved James Forsyth. I love his preaching. I'm so grateful anytime that I'm in town and not preaching somewhere else to be able to sit here and grow under his teaching. And I want to, I have two sermons. The first one is very short and it's this. When I came here January of 1990, I followed a, a missional legend, Don Hoke, who had been here for about a decade. Don had been one of the first missionaries to go to Japan after World War II in response to MacArthur's call. And he was a leader there who started the seminary in Tokyo, the Bible school in Tokyo. He was a close friend of Billy Graham's, headed the first Lausanne conference. I mean, I could go through long lists. Cedar Springs called him at his retirement because Cedar Springs wanted to become more involved in global mission and wanted somebody who knew how to do that. So when Don came here, everything was front-loaded to Monday. Session meeting, deacon meeting, staff meeting, everything was Monday because often as not, Don was flying off Tuesday morning to some part of the world. So he was in and out all the time, which made it very easy for me when I came to seem as though I was here a lot, when indeed you were giving me lots of time to be away speaking. Uh, I was, when I first came, given 12 weeks, four weeks for vacation with my family, four weeks study leave, and four weeks for mission. And I very quickly, because I study all the time, I said, may I just roll my four-week study leave into more mission trips? So for my almost 30 years with you, I was usually gone eight weeks on mission, and sometimes longer. Uh, why do I say that? I often have friends who say to me, how did you, because I love change, and they say, you love change, how did you manage to stay someplace that long? And I said, because Cedar Springs let me keep going around the world to see what God was doing and come back with fresh insights. And please do that for James. James came here two years younger than I was when I came. I'm the longest serving pastor in the history of this 226 year old church. Some of you young people thought I was the organizing pastor. Um, <laughs> James, James was two years younger and it is my fervent prayer that when at last 
He retires, it will be from here, and he will have surpassed my time here. But he will not be able to do that unless you encourage him to stay fresh, to keep going, to go on mission, and to come back and bring you the fruit of that. That's thus ended the first lesson. Now, you all are studying Colossians, and Colossians is one of my favorite books. Um, it was written, as you've been told, uh, to a church that was facing an early form of what we now call Gnosticism, from the Greek word for knowledge. And the idea was that you were saved by learning mysteries that other people didn't know. So you were admitted into the mysteries uh, of gnosis, knowledge. And Paul, who knows that they were founded on the gospel, is writing this letter to call them back to tell them that there is but one great mystery, and it is a revealed mystery. And so we start with verse 24, and I'll be reading down through verse 5 of chapter 2. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, those of you who will know me will realize that much as I love this little letter and powerful as I find these particular verses, you'll understand why I feel utterly, utterly inadequate to preach them. Um, I'm preaching to myself. If I seem at times to be a little over the top, it's because I need so desperately to hear the message of this text. And if you want to listen in on my conversation with myself, I welcome you in just now. What am I talking about? Paul opens with this remarkable statement. I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, remember, he's writing from prison. He has been suffering. He's, he's a prisoner, and he's writing to a church in trouble, and he's sending that letter, hoping that they will get it, that they'll receive it, that they'll understand it. But then he says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, for in my flesh I fulfill what is lacking 
in Christ's afflictions. Now, when we first read that, I mean, it seems like an astonishingly arrogant, almost blasphemous statement. How in the world can Paul presume to be fulfilling something that was lacking in Christ's afflictions? And in the Middle Ages, this was often used by the Western church to add things to the gospel, to say, well, because we're still adding to Christ's afflictions, you need to go on this pilgrimage and you need to pay this for forgiveness and do this. And this was utterly abused because it was misunderstood. If Paul meant that there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions with regard to the atonement, then that statement is a denial of everything that he taught elsewhere and a denial of his central theme in this letter. Because as those of you who've been studying along uh, with the, the summer teaching will realize Paul opens by presenting Jesus Christ as absolutely and utterly supreme. He says he's the firstborn of creation. He's over all of that. Everything's through him, for him, in him, by him. He's supreme in the creation, and he's firstborn from the dead. And so he's supreme within the church. And he even said earlier, if you look up just a little before our text, in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So clearly, with regard to the atonement, with regard to our being right with God, there is utterly nothing to be added to what Christ has done. That's the whole point of what Paul's writing. What then does he mean? What's he talking about? And why do I find it so difficult? Well, the thrust of what Paul is saying to these people who are seeking the mysteries is that there is but one mystery that has in it all of the wisdom and understanding that reveals the meaning of life, the meaning of our purpose, and it is Christ. And before he says that in chapter 2, he says at the end of, of the verses in chapter 1 that in Christ, are, he says in Christ, that we are in Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So he's talking about our union with Christ. He's saying, in effect, may I say this gently, because I grew up son of a Baptist pastor too. Uh, many of you, you know, you come to Christ, the Salvation Army gets you out of the gutter, and the Baptists regenerate you, and you're born again. And then the Methodists give you a social conscience. And then the Presbyterians give you theology. And then the Episcopalians sophisticate you. And then the Salvation Army gets you out of the gutter again. It all starts all over again. <laughs> but I, I grew up in that kind of a circle where you pray a sinner's prayer. I, I'm guilty for my sin. What do I do? Come here, pray, say, acknowledge you're a sinner, ask Jesus in your heart. And if you said, am I saved? Oh, yes, don't ever doubt your salvation again. Well, there's, the Bible doesn't ever say anything like that. The old Puritans were much wiser. When they prayed with a person, if the person said, am I now saved? They said, we'll see. As the great German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, only those who obey believe and only those who believe obey. So what Paul is giving us here is a picture of his life and ministry 
in two parts. In verse 25, he summarizes his whole way of doing ministry, his view of what we're called to do. And he said, I want to make the word of God fully known. Then in verse 28, he gives us his goal in making the word of God fully known. And his goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. So I want us to look at those for the next few minutes. And if I run over, I mean, what are you going to do? Fire me? Take away, <laughs> take away my title? Uh, James didn't tell you what he also added when he said, you know, you don't have to do this, don't have to do this. And he said, of course, you know, there won't be any salary with it. So it's okay. Um, Paul make, made the word of God fully known in two ways. And the first brings us right to the question that I opened with. What in the world does Paul mean by saying, I fulfill in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Paul understood and was the one who brought to the church the idea that the church is the body of Christ. Where did Paul learn that? He learned it on the way to Damascus when his name was still Saul and he was still a Pharisee going around arresting Christians in order to put them in jail and hopefully put some of them to death to stop this whole Christian movement. And you know the story. On his way to Damascus, blinding light, he fell to the ground. A voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, Paul realized that you touch a Christian, you are touching Jesus. That Christians are the ongoing, continuing body of Christ in the world. Our head is in heaven, but we are here. And he is in us and we are in him. We are his body. And so Paul realized that as we go our way, we are continuing the ministry of Christ. That still doesn't explain why he would say, I fulfill in my flesh. So here it is. This, I, I will be like Henry Kissinger. I'm right. This is, this is what it means, I'm convinced. And everybody else who has a different view is just wrong. <laughs> Christ's sacrifice was utterly complete and full in doing all that we need to be right with God. It was a full and complete atoning sacrifice. But it is not self-proclaiming. What he did for God has to be told. And for God's people to carry it to the world, whether in the safety of your office or a school or a neighborhood or anywhere, you will meet resistance. And he says, I rejoice. I rejoice when I suffer for this because I know that this is how God is carrying his message. And so I, and he's calling us to take it up. That we, when we take the gospel out, are fulfilling in our flesh that which is yet lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church, until at last those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation have been called into the family and made his. We've had so many great mission speakers here over the years, but the one I think that had the greatest impact on me was uh, an English woman, a doctor named Helen Rosevere. I don't know how many of you all remember Helen. And she, thank you, I hear that, amen. She was 
Uh, she's one of my great heroes. She lived to 91 and uh, fought the good fight. What's her story? In 1953, she went to what was called the Congo and began starting hospitals, medical centers, had an effective term there, but really was lonely and asked the Lord, when I go home on furlough, please give me a husband. And she was convinced the Lord would, and she went back to England. To her great disappointment, nothing turned out. She would later say, God called him, but he didn't hear. Um, <laughs> but she went back she went back to Africa, as she later confessed, with some real bitterness in her heart, anger, disappointment, I'll say, toward God for not giving her a partner. She labored on. And then in the early 1960s, you know the story of one nation after another throwing off the yoke of colonialism. And the Congo exploded with revolution. And one night, the rebels came to her hospital and chased her and caught her and just brutalized her. They, over the months that they held her captive, she was repeatedly beaten, repeatedly raped, repeatedly humiliated. And she said that first night of terror and horror and shame, she said, I don't remember praying. If I did pray, it would have been, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But she said someone at home was praying because in the midst of, of the anguish, I suddenly knew that Christ was there with me. And it was as though he put his arms around me and just said, years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. They're not just doing this to you. They're doing this to me as well. And she said, it didn't take away the fear, the shame, the pain. But she said, all of that was increasingly swallowed up in privilege. The privilege of sharing in his sufferings that I might be conformed to his image. And I remember she said to us, if God wants to greatly use you, He'll greatly break you. He uses broken people. Now, I'm in anguish up here preaching this. Because for years, people would ask me, how can we pray for you? And I always would say, pray that I end well. And I know from years of Bible teaching what that looks like, because it's all the stuff I've been asking you guys to do all these years. But suddenly when I was retired, it was like, well, I don't have anyone around me to tell what they should be doing. So I guess I don't have anything to do. So I love, I love gardens. Mary Ann gave me that great love. She was a wonderful gardener and I was a yard boy. So I got to know all kinds of things I'd never known. But I have now just a lovely garden off my screen porch. And on a cool morning like this morning, I love to go out there early with a cup of coffee as the sun comes up. And in the spring, it was those blazing azaleas and uh, rhododendron. And then the, the beautiful fragrance of the camellias as they come in bloom. And just now, against the deep, rich green background of the skip laurels, I've got this just bowers of white uh, hydrangeas. I think they're Annabelle's. 
uh, in, in blazing bloom. Now, I think God wants us to delight in beauty. He made a beautiful world. He made us to appreciate it. But I've been living my life on my porch, drinking my coffee, and reading about people like Helen Rosevear and uh, other great Christians and saying, Lord, raise up another generation like that. Do I have any fresh croissants? They'd be good, you know? And I, I realized studying this text, I have not been on a trajectory that leads to ending well. Because the calling that he has given us never ends. We may retire from one position. You may be a teacher who's retired or a parent whose kids have gone away. But we are the body of Christ and every one of us uniquely gifted. We're not all called to be pastors, church planters, Uh, missionaries, but every single one of us has been called of God to use the gifts he's given us. He never asks for what we don't have, but he wants what he's given us to be used for the good of those around us and for his glory. And you may be going through a time of tremendous trouble and difficulty right now. Let me tell you, God is inviting you to give that to him and ask him to make that an occasion for you to love those around you well. My dear wife, three years stuck in bed, unable to do the things she had done and to show us in the ways that she could have. And yet, much as I true confession, I got sick and tired of taking care of her. Marianne, you know it. But she never failed to love us well from that bed of death the best she could with what she had. We never for a moment doubted how deeply and truly we were loved by her. What was she doing? She was fulfilling in her flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Every one of us is called to that. You may say, well, I've got a good life. It's great. I thank God you've got a good life. I thank God you've not ever suffered. Just you wait. It comes at last to all, unless you get hit by a truck or run over by a train before it happens, in which case, as Jack Gilbert, the great poet, said, you can thank God that your death had magnitude. (laughs) But for most of us, we're going to go through it at some point, whether it's through agonizing over our children. I remember years ago, it's an old saying, I guess, but the first person I heard say it was Kathy Keller, and she said, ah, you're only as happy as your least happy child. And I immediately thought, can God ever be happy? (laughs) So, Paul is making the word of God fully known. That's his method. Verse 25, and his aim in it, his goal, verse 28, is that he might present all of us mature. So first, as we've already been saying, in making the word of God fully known, he does it first through his life. You need to be living in such a way that people will have reason to believe that your message is true. I don't have time to talk about the the text from Exodus, but remember in our gospel lesson, Matthew 16, Jesus has said to the disciples, have you yet figured out who I am? Do you know who I am? And Peter, of all people, has said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, I know you, Peter. You didn't come up with this on your own. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And then he begins to talk about the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter immediately comes to him and says, 
You don't have to, no, doesn't, let's not talk about the cross. Doesn't have to be a cross. And now Jesus turns to him. Jesus has just said, oh, you know, the oracle, God speaking through you. And now he says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he turns to them and says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Now, why that transition? Do you remember that Jesus said after he told them, yes, you're right. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And on this rock of this confession, I'll build my church. Jesus then said, do not tell anyone. Why? He was on his way to Jerusalem to die. So it wasn't the messianic secret. Why did he say, don't tell anyone? He said, don't tell anyone because of what was about to happen. He knew that they weren't ready to face the cross, their cross. And so he said, in order to save you, there's a cross for me. But in order to be my disciples, there is a cross for you. And unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciples. And yet all the way to Jerusalem, they would argue over which one was going to be greatest. James and John got their mother to go to Jesus for Pete's sake and ask for the seats of honor. But there was a cross for them. And they had to face it at last. There's a cross for you and a cross for me. And you may be thinking, this does not sound very encouraging, John. Thanks a lot. Go back into retirement. Depress yourself. <laughs> but don't forget that Paul says, I rejoice. That's his opening word. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you because this is for your salvation. This is for your maturity. So there was his life, and yet he immediately begins to proclaim. There's this message that he proclaims, so it's not just the life we live. I frequently hear people quote in odd places what they say is a quotation of St. Francis of Assisi. I'm sure you've heard it in some form. It goes like this. Always preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. And the idea is it's so much better just to live so beautifully that people in just watching your life will then know that, you know, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness. Don't be ridiculous. Number one, every Francis of Assisi scholar has said he never said it and he wouldn't have said it because he was a powerful preacher. He lived beautifully, but he preached powerfully and convictingly. And at some point, whether we're dealing with the discipleship of our children or the conversations with friends who want to know what has changed our lives, at some point you have to tell it. And in order to tell it, you have to know it. And so Paul says, all of this is so that you will have a full, full knowledge. You'll, the full word of God will be declared to you very quickly. I know time is running out. <laughs> That's, I, I noticed when I worked in surgery that sometimes if anesthesia was too light uh, and the person began to move and feel it, the anesthesiologist would say, can you feel that? Uh, okay, okay, okay. Which was to give them the assurance that they were doing something when they weren't doing anything. We used to call it okay anesthesia. So a pastor's okay anesthesia is to say, I know that I'm almost out of time here. <laughs> No, I really, I'm getting close. <laughs> the, 
the goal was maturity. And how did he lead them to maturity? Two ways. You can just look in verse 2 of chapter 2. In the first part, he aims at the heart. He says, I want your hearts to be engaged in loving one another. He aimed at the affections. And that's where usually the path to maturity has to start. I grew up in a Christian home. And I was the wild one in the middle. And we would, I knew so much. Every night we sat down, dad would read the Bible. He would explain the Bible. We'd go through the Bible year after year. We'd all get on our knees and we would pray. The youngest one was my brother Jim, whom some of you know, who even then was a prayer warrior. When I wanted the prayer time to end, I wanted to go play. And we'd finally get to Jim, the youngest. And I can still remember he would pray for everyone we'd, he'd ever met, I think. <laughs> and anything that he'd heard anybody else pray for that evening would be repeated. And, and he would finally run out of things, and there'd be a pause, and I'd start getting excited because I knew we were almost done, and he would end by saying, and all of us all over the world, please, Lord, please, and I was to the door on my way out. I was full of knowledge, but it didn't do anything for me because my heart had not been changed. And when God began to burn in my heart and change my affections, suddenly it was as though this great pile of wood had, wood had been gathered and the fire was lit and it began to blaze. And Paul, in the second half of verse 2, aims at the head and says, so that you may have this full understanding. Just listen to that beautiful verse. This is, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, but then to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, I'm almost done. Just this. Um, Paul wrote this letter from prison. He was writing to a church in trouble. If you had said 2022 to him, he'd have said, never happen. Christ will, be, Christ will probably come before I'm gone or shortly thereafter. The idea that these letters that he wrote in the midst of a busy life and fired off to a group of people to, to address problems they were having, that those letters would be taken into every tribe and tongue and people and nation and would somehow transcend all of the cultural and, and worldview differences and speak life transformingly to those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. These letters of Paul have had a greater impact on human history than, that, than the greatest campaigns of any general, the greatest leadership of any king or political leader. Over 2,000 years transforming the world. And yet, to someone watching then, he would have looked like a loser. Always being hauled out back. I won't read the list I did in the first service, but go to 2 Corinthians 11, and he talks about all these shipwrecks and beatings and, you know, all the things that happened to him. And he would have just looked like someone who was always striving, overreaching, never there. And finally, when he's arrested, taken to Rome, and Nero has him taken out to the Ostian Way to have his head cut off because he was a Roman citizen, so they couldn't crucify him. 
any, any you know, journalist recording it would have said, well, didn't, didn't turn out so well for this guy. This little bandy-legged preacher came to the big city and got himself decapitated, and history will forget him, and Nero's still sitting on his throne. But as T.R. Glover once wrote, today we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. Brothers and sisters, you may look at our culture and be heartbroken from whichever political side you're looking at it. You may rue the divisions, all these things that we should rue. Our hearts should ache for our country. We long to be walking together again with a mutual respect and love and affection, able to have civil conversations and speak into each other's lives. But don't ever be afraid because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. It just won't. The victory's been won in Christ. He's now called us to be willing, even at the points where it may cost us something, to carry that message. Would you do that? I want to do that again. I'm, I'm tired of sitting on my porch. So, I love you. God bless.